All right, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start by reviewing the text we've covered so far in this series as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, here's what we've covered so far. The Bible says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Today we'll continue to learn from our teacher, our rabbi, whose name is Jesus. We're studying his Sermon on the Mount, which can be fairly summarized as a lesson in how to have heaven on earth. Jesus wants to show us what God's kingdom would look like if we were to live it out in the here and now. He's also making promises about the new heaven and the new earth, which will ultimately be fulfilled when he returns. You know, it's so very ironic that when people say someone is trying to have their heaven on earth, they typically mean such a person is being materialistic, living for stuff, or basically being worldly. But the true greatness of heaven has nothing to do with those things. Jesus showed us a different perspective when it comes to heaven. And he taught his followers that bringing his heaven to bear on earth is actually job number one. What are the promises that Jesus has made so far to those who apply his teaching? Besides the the fact that they will be blessed in general, they will also receive the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, they will receive the comfort of God, verse 4, and an inheritance on the new earth, verse 5. All of these promises really equate to experiencing his heaven, at least partially, on earth. You see, friends, as we follow the teachings of Jesus, we bring up there, down here. As we follow Jesus on this earth, we bring God's kingdom with us wherever we go, just as he did. Indeed, placing his kingdom in proximity to the kingdom of this world is our only hope of changing it. And make no mistake, we are to change it. And what comes after the Beatitudes? Salt and light. Right now we're walking through the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which consists of these short, pithy statements, pronouncements about those who have been blessed by God. These introductory declarations known as the Beatitudes. We've talked about the first three Beatitudes, and today we'll talk about the next three. Because I figured if we kept taking one per week, we're going to be on this thing for about the next three years. So, the next three. Jesus continues. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I believe these three statements go together in such a way as to summarize the whole message of Christ and his gospel. The first of these is actually about faith. The second is about mercy, which also may be referred to as grace. And the third statement is about purity, which is also called holiness, which is also to become like Christ. The way these concepts work together is the key to understanding the gospel according to Jesus. Again, three biblical words 
encapsulate these Beatitudes, faith, grace, and purity. Let's look at each verse individually. First, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So, where do I get the idea that this verse is about faith? First, understand that righteousness is basically another word for holiness or purity, as Jesus refers to it in verse 8. To be righteous is to be holy and pure before God. Let me just say, good luck with that. Right? This is not possible for humans to do. The Bible is extremely clear on this, and I think most people know that, that they are never going to be good enough for God without at least a little help. Even most people who think of themselves as pretty good know they are still going to need a break or two from God. And of course, in reality, we need so much more than just a break or two. Even what we consider to be righteousness on our part is like filthy rags to Him. So what about the worst parts? Listen, the Bible says that left, to our own, left on our own, the absolute best of the absolute best of us is still utterly disgusting to God. Understand that God doing something about our disgusting sin problem from His perspective is our only hope for achieving righteousness. Therefore, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is actually to hunger and thirst for God. He is the only one who is righteous and He is the only one who can fill us with His righteousness. It turns out that a desire for righteousness is a desire for God. Remember, I'm on the way to explaining how this is really all about faith. But first, we also need to understand that Jesus is referring to a state of being, not a way of behaving, although that does come later. We must be made righteous before we can live righteously. Being comes before doing. Why? Because God created the world with integrity. That means eventually, and ultimately, as His creatures, we can only pretend for so long. We can only pretend so much and for so long. A carrot is a carrot not a watermelon, and so on. That's just the way God created things. And so as humans, we are only human. Because of the curse of sin, we are not born with the righteousness of God, which means that in order to have a chance to actually live righteous lives, we must first be remade righteous by Him. That is, we must receive the righteousness which comes from God, indeed the righteousness which is God. And the Bible says that only happens through faith. If there is one thing that is clear in the Bible, righteousness is granted to us through faith. Most of the book of Romans is written to establish this fact. Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified by what? Faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is the key to our being made righteous by God. Abraham believed God and then he was credited with righteousness by God. But what is righteousness? Let me make it simple. 
Righteousness means to be right with God. Remember that. To be righteous is to be right with God. Not with the world or some other standard. Righteousness is to be right with God. And remember also that you can never attain rightness with God on your own. You simply can never make things right with God. You will never make things right with God. You will never make things right with God. Only He can make things right with you. Let's rewind for a second. What has Jesus talked about so far? Spiritual poverty. Mourning over that poverty. And being meek enough to realize that you need God. Here Jesus says those who hunger and thirst for right standing with God will be filled. He says those who hunger and thirst for holiness will be satisfied as they are filled up with the very thing they seek. So the prerequisite is hunger and thirst. And that is consistent with the first three Beatitudes I already covered. Remember, only beggars beg. Only spiritually starving people seek after spiritual food from a spiritual God. So again, where does faith come in? Here it is. One does not actually hunger and thirst for something he or she does not believe exists. Faith seeks righteousness from God as if it were food to a famished man or water to a woman dying of thirst. Faith is born out of desperation. Is anyone here desperate enough today to come to Jesus? What does it really mean to hunger and thirst? Do these words communicate to us in 21st century America the same way they did to the audience in 1st century Galilee? Probably not. The people Jesus was talking to knew what it meant to hunger, to thirst in a way most of us have never experienced. We call ourselves hungry when it's been a few hours since our last double cheeseburger and fries. Am I right? Jesus is talking to people who had experienced famine and drought and, he, and, and who had probably gone for days without food or good water. And he's saying, when you hunger for God like you've hungered for food in your most famished state, or when you thirst for God, for Jesus, God in the flesh, like a person who just walked through a desert, that is when you will be satisfied by Him. So even though we've been covering it for four weeks now, the topic of this sermon of Jesus has not changed. The whole thing has been about seeking God with all of our hearts. And ultimately, what's that all about? Well, it's all about faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. But what is the reward? First and foremost, the reward is righteousness. As mentioned, perhaps the most central truth in the Bible is that true righteousness, right standing before God, can only come through faith. This is the very thing that makes Christianity different from all of the other world religions. Unlike other religions, we do not seek our own righteousness, but the righteousness which comes from God. We come to Him in order to receive, not really so much to offer. Why? Because we have nothing and He has everything. 
As the Apostle Paul later put it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him. Watch this part. Not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Jesus is talking to Jews in this sermon, Jews who had believed that the way to God was basically by being good enough in their own strength. They thought they had something to offer. Later in this sermon, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because even the best of man's righteousness is worthless. Here in the fourth beatitude, Jesus is not talking about legalistic efforts to be righteous when he says hunger and thirst for righteousness, but about faith that ushers in the grace that means God declares us to be righteous in spite of ourselves. That's why the next verse is about mercy. Because righteousness is a grace gift from God, and we must understand that this gift is granted only through faith in Him. Let me reiterate, the faith we are talking about involves hunger and thirst. Jesus is not talking about a passing whim or a just-in-case-I-need-it kind of thing. He's not talking about a ticket to heaven or fire insurance to keep you from hell. As much as those two things are needed, they will not be received unless there is a hunger and a thirst for the righteousness that only comes as a gift of grace from God. Only spiritually poor, mourning, meek, starving, thirsty people come to God with the kind of faith that is required to receive righteousness from Him. This is why we see so many times in the Bible that we must repent and believe. It is not so much that two different things are required as it is to use two words to fully describe true faith. See, true faith appears before God with hat in hand. Just as Esther came before the Persian emperor, her life in the balance, and as the criminal on the cross came to Jesus moments before it would have been eternally too late. And as the Philippian jailer came to the apostle Paul after the earthquake asking, what must I do to be saved? Paul's answer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He didn't say repent. But notice, he said, believe to a man who was already clearly hungry and thirsty for salvation from God. Jesus is saying true faith is hunger. True faith is thirst. Only beggars beg. But let's not miss the promise here. Jesus says they will be filled those who hunger and thirst for right standing with God will be satisfied by Him. The original Greek word here speaks of complete and total satisfaction in a permanent sense. Do you realize what a promise this is? No other religious teacher has ever promised such a thing. Jesus says, if what you seek, is most, seek most is right standing with God, you will receive exactly that. 
What a promise. Later in the New Testament, we find more specific information about what exactly God has done in order to give us this righteousness, even as we seek it by faith. He granted us righteousness by dying on the cross for our sins. But have you had the faith to receive it? Have you ever been desperate enough to receive the gift of right standing before God through faith in Christ and what he did on the cross? I was desperate enough at six years old. Even at that age, I remember being aware of my sin and knowing I needed forgiveness, that I was not okay with God and I desperately wanted to be. I remember being afraid of God, in tears over my sin, and then receiving Christ by faith and no longer being afraid. Most people are older when they recognize the hunger and the thirst. Have you ever been hungry and thirsty for right standing before God? Have you ever been filled with the peace of knowing that God has forgiven you for every wrong? The one preaching the Sermon on the Mount is the one you seek. Jesus was God in the flesh. The one who earned righteousness and the one who offers it. Go to Him in your heart, in prayer, with a hunger for His righteousness, and there you will be filled. This is the promise of Jesus. Some of you still need to take that first step of faith in receiving Christ. Others of you need to remember the hunger you once felt, the thirst after God as you once did, and to remember the joy of being filled, of being satisfied in Him. Next, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. One of the great principles of Scripture is that those who are given much must also give much. Those who receive grace must grant grace. Those who are forgiven must forgive. Those who are shown mercy must show mercy. But here Jesus turns it around a bit and says that God will show mercy to the merciful. Still, taken in context, it all starts with God. See, those who have been filled by God, verse 6, have mercy to give, verse 7. Do you see how this flows from God through people? That's because starving people generally don't feed others. Now, I think there are two ways to apply this verse, the second having to do with the theological implications of the grace of God. But before we go there, I also believe there's a very practical application that Jesus wants us to understand as well. So far, Jesus has spoken of the poor, those who mourn, and those who hunger and thirst. His points are primarily spiritual rather than physical, and yet through his imagery, I do think he intends to prick our hearts for those who are in physical need. And here in the fifth beatitude, after planting images of the poor and needy in our minds, Jesus says, those who are merciful will receive mercy. Mercy is one of the great character qualities of God. There are hundreds of verses of Scripture referring to His mercy. As an example, the psalmist wrote, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. All true mercy on this earth finds its source in God. I believe that. This is something you can really just 
rationalize. You can just reason this out. Why else would anyone be merciful? If there is no God, why? Does survival of the fittest cause us to be merciful? Do mere animals know how to show mercy? If you think so, you're not being honest about the ferocious reality of nature. And really, is there any reason for mercy in a godless world whatsoever? There's not. I promise you that when someone is merciful on this planet, God is at work. One Bible dictionary defines mercy as the quality in God that directs him to forge a relationship with people who absolutely do not deserve to be in relationship with him. Mercy is manifested in God's activity on behalf of his people. Mercy is manifested in God's activity. That's something I came to understand as I studied for this message, that mercy requires activity. Mercy is an action word. It means doing something. It may well begin with feelings of compassion and sympathy, but unless those emotions result in actions, they are not mercy. Mercy is compassion actualized. Mercy is sympathy applied. Mercy is caring enacted upon a real person. Mercy requires action. We ought to be merciful in our actions toward those in need. That is a part of what Jesus meant here. But as mentioned, there's a much deeper truth as well. The promise here is really the gift of grace from God, both to and through mankind. The previous verse turns out to be all about faith, and this verse is really all about grace. Mercy and grace are like two sides of the same coin. I suppose you might say that mercy is grace applied. But regardless, the heart of what Jesus is saying here theologically is that grace truly received always becomes grace freely offered. Grace or mercy is a river. And what actually flows in must also flow out. Remember, we receive this grace by faith. Remember, we are filled when in our hunger and thirst we come to God desperate to receive right standing from Him. Righteousness comes through faith. And the, this righteousness is the grace gift of God. But then following this, Jesus says those who are made right by God's grace will also be compelled to offer that grace to others. Why? Because those who are actually filled with grace will also be graceful. Jesus essentially says that if you're not merciful, you will not receive mercy. That's the way he puts it. And yet we know, both from the context of this passage and the rest of the New Testament, that in reality we must receive mercy from God before we have it to give. I think the reason Jesus says it this way is that he does that to establish the fact that if grace is not flowing out, it must have never flowed in. Now, what is the most merciful thing you could do for another person? Think about that. In light of everything that you could think of and, and, and in light of eternity, what is the most merciful or grace-filled thing you could do for another person. What could be more merciful than sharing the good news about the availability of right standing with God through faith in Jesus Christ? The great symbol of biblical mercy is none other than the cross of Christ. 
We are to be messengers of mercy, proclaimers of the good news of the cross where Jesus died once for all. Blessed are those who share the grace of God with others, for they will also be shown grace by Him, or more precisely, they already have been, and they're proving it. Can you imagine one who, having been spiritually poor, having been desperately hungry and thirsty for right standing before God, having been given righteousness and being fully satisfied by Him, choosing nevertheless to keep it all to themselves and not to tell others who are still poor and still hungry and still desperate where to find what they need? Can you imagine such selfishness? Neither can God. There is an order to the salvation Jesus is promising to the spiritually poor. For our part, it all starts with desperate faith, which is fulfilled by saving grace, flowing both in and out of your life. But where does all of this ultimately lead? It leads to holiness. It leads to godliness. Faith and grace lead to a life of purity in Christ. This brings us to the sixth beatitude where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. At first glance, you might think think this doesn't go with the last two Beatitudes, but in fact, it flows right out of them. Faith unlocks grace, which enables purity. Let's remember the makeup of the original audience as well as the religious culture of which they were a part. Theirs was, frankly, a prideful religion. None of that going on in Christianity today. It was a prideful religion. Presuming, presuming special favor from God, unavailable to others. They believe God's grace came to them by virtue of physical heritage, and yet strict adherence to the law of God as laid out by Moses was also required. Beyond that, the scribes and Pharisees had written hundreds of other laws based on those laws so that the original laws could never even be approached to be broken. And following all of these rules became the definition of purity. That's what they thought of as purity, holiness, right standing with God, following all of these rules, outward, outward expressions of religion had become the goal, a means to their own end. And so they criticized Jesus for things such as healing a man on the Sabbath. No heart, only rules only being right. Jesus and His disciples simply did not follow all the outward rules of the religious right, and so they rejected Jesus. How dare He refuse to meet all of their externally based religious and sometimes political requirements? Worst of all, Jesus simply wasn't condemning enough of those other people. He wasn't condemning enough of the outward failures of others for their liking. But Jesus repeatedly taught that God was looking at the inside of a person much more than the outside. He demolished the teachings of the religious leaders when he said that lust was as bad as adultery, that hate was as bad as murder, and that coveting was as bad as theft. We'll be exploring those ideas later in the series, but right now the point is that Jesus leveled the playing field. If what he was saying was true, then everyone needed grace just as much 
as anyone else. Because obviously everyone's heart was a problem. Take note that virtually every single thing Jesus ever taught referred to a matter of the heart. Whether it was pride or forgiveness or love or greed or sexuality, whatever the topic, he was always talking about the heart and the spirit and getting right on the inside. Once Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah saying, This people honor me, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. The inference is that God is offended by what a person says, even if what he says is good unless it matches the reality within. If our worship and service and missionary efforts for God do not flow from inward purity, it is all meaningless at best and blasphemous at worst. As the prophet Joel said to those religious leaders who would tear their robes as an outward sign of repentance, stop rending your garments and rend your hearts instead. Purity begins in the heart, says Jesus. See, people have always wanted to substitute outward religious activity for true spiritual renewal. But that is what makes religion empty and detestable. In Jesus' day, the outward religious acts that were supposed to demonstrate purity consisted of things like sacrificing animals and boys being circumcised and women wearing proper clothing and the covering or uncovering of heads and the repeated washing of hands and hundreds of other rules and rituals. All of these were to be tools to help them act out what was supposed to be true in their hearts. But when the signs became ends in themselves rather than accurate representations of the heart, God was disgusted rather than pleased. What about us? Do you come to church to try to feel better about yourself? Or do you come to church to actually get better? That'd be worth thinking about. Why do you read your Bible? Why do you try not to sin? Why do you help people? Oh, how many are the ways in which we try to look good in spite of our lack of inner purity. We try to say all the right things. We try to act the right way. We have lists of do's and don'ts and identify ourselves by the avoidance of certain sins. What are we doing here at church? Why are we doing it? My friends, I'm afraid that we are just as good at external religion in spite of internal depravity as was that original group who were standing around listening to the Sermon on the Mount. Understand clearly that Jesus did not say, blessed are the pure. What did he say? He said, blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus knew how good we can be at keeping up appearances maybe even following all the right rules for a time, at least while others are watching. But listen carefully, appearances will gain you no blessing from God whatsoever. Nada. None. And here's the really big point. Appearances will not allow you to see God. In this life or the next. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is where there is or is not real life change as a result of knowing God by grace through faith. Jesus said in Revelation 3.20 that he is knocking on the doors of our hearts. 
By the way, technically, that is written to a church. It's written to believers. It's talking about our relationship with him. He's knocking on the doors of our hearts. And then if anyone will open the door, he will come in and commune with them. But brothers and sisters, know this also. When Jesus comes in, he cleans house. I think that's why most of us don't open the door very often. Even after we've received Christ as our Savior, we just keep that figurative door of our heart closed. We keep Jesus waiting out in the hall because we don't want Him to see the mess in our room. Our hearts are not pure, so we put up walls as if to hide the junk. And in putting up our walls, it really does not stop Him from seeing us. But it definitely stops us from seeing Him. Where's your junk? Which rooms of your heart are closed doors to Jesus? In what areas do you struggle with purity on the inside? And perhaps more importantly, what is your motivation in striving for that purity? Is there any motivation that can help you work with Jesus to clean out your heart and to keep it clean? Maybe this will help. Francois Mauriac was a, a French Catholic author in the mid-20th century, Nobel Prize winner, wrote extensively about the topic of lust. By the way, if you have a problem learning from a brilliant Catholic author, you are officially too narrow-minded. Back to the point, when it comes to purity of the heart, for most men and some women, there is no greater struggle than lust. Moriak describes sexual desire as a tidal wave powerful enough to bear away all the best intentions. But he did not stop, as many men do, by simply declaring the intensity of our struggle. Moriak wanted to do something about it. He wanted to help. So this scholar and writer began to research and to look for a motivation strong enough to help him and others actually attain real purity in this very difficult area. He tried self-discipline. He tried rational thinking. He tried repression. He tried to convince himself that God's way really is better, and it is. Yet none of his internal arguments worked to stop him from frequently giving in to the sin of lust one way or another. In the end, Moriak found only one motivation that actually helped him maintain purity in this area over the long term. You know where he found that motivation? He found it in Matthew 5, 8, where Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Summed all of his research up with a simple statement, Impurity separates us from God. In addition to the fact that this is a good interpretation of what Jesus said, I have also found by experience that this statement is true. There is simply no doubt that when I allow even what seems to be a small amount of, of lust to go unconfessed in my heart, I lose a certain level of closeness with God. As David put it in Psalm 66, if I had not confessed the sin in my heart, my Lord would not have listened. I have singled out lust, but it is true for any sin allowed to go unchecked in the life of an unbeliever. A little yeast leavens the whole lump of dough. Impurity separates us from God, at least to the degree where we don't see Him. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will experience God. They will have an awareness 
of God. They will hear God's voice. They will know God in Christ as a friend. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will maintain a vision of the closeness of God. Let me tell you something, church family. The ability to see God in your life is worth meeting the challenge of purity head on. I tell you this from experiencing what it is like when God seems so very near and also knowing what it is like when God seems impossibly hard to find. This is not a magic formula and it isn't about perfection. I don't know what level of purity is required. I don't even always know how to get there, but there is truth in Jesus' words, my friends. Hear this today. The pure in heart will see God. So what now? For starters, get rid of the thing you are thinking of at this moment. That which you know is making you impure before God. Discipline yourself and get rid of it. Seek the Lord in repentance, and that is when you will see Him again. Maybe not immediately, but within a reasonable time frame, you will see Him. Seeing God starts with the heart, and make no mistake, when the heart is right, external changes will follow. So seriously, how is your heart? Is there pride inside? Is there envy? Is there lust? Idolatry? Hatred? Seething anger? Greed? An unforgiving attitude? I could go on with other possibilities. But the amazing thing is no matter what impurity is in there, you can come clean today. That's the power of the cross. I think we sang earlier, the cross is enough. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, purity can start right now as you turn away from that sin and come close to Jesus for help and forgiveness. By the way, practically speaking, in our day, if you want to be pure in heart, it will be necessary for you to avoid many things that worldly people think are just fine. Do you understand that? If you want to be one of those rare pure in heart people, Someone who's blessed to powerfully see God in your life. You just can't play most video games anymore. Take it from a gamer. Worse and worse and worse. You just can't play most of them and be pure in heart. Ain't no way. I think I have two or three now. I feel like I can play. That's about it. Just a random example. Maybe it wasn't random. Maybe somebody need to hear it. Bottom line. Purity means making real decisions that other people don't make. And sometimes those decisions are hard because in our flesh there are pleasures that are utterly sinful. As a fellow preacher put it over and over again and over and over again in this one sermon and famous sermon that he did. You can't just do what you want. First time he said it I thought that's kind of that's not really saying a whole lot but by the time he said it over and I was like, I might have been doing some of that. Just kind of what I want. Can your heart stay pure with all this going in? Can a spring bubble up with both pure water and poisoned water? Jesus answered that question. He said, nope. What about your phone? Lord have mercy. You're going to need... Very disciplined thumbs and fingers to maintain purity. If you even own a smartphone, oh wait, that's pretty well everybody. I wonder how that happened. 
I recently decided to remove several different apps. Like news apps designed to keep me angry. And Google, where images can be terrible. And do you have any idea what your teenagers are watching on YouTube? Forget teenagers, I can't have that app on my phone. If I want to watch a church service or something, I might put it on there just to watch it and take it right back off. All it takes is a click or two to throw your purity out the window. And it's always with you, isn't it? Don't start down that path. By all means, if your kids are preteens, set limits that the world will think are ridiculous. Or maybe not even that kind of power in their hand. That's up to you. Isn't seeing God in your life worth setting some better guidelines for yourself? Is the blessing of God not more important than momentary pleasures that really wind up ruining your life? Come out of that pit. Come out of the downward spiraling trap of the world and fall into the waiting arms of Jesus instead. Come out of the black hole of normal. Be different. Take up your cross and follow Christ into what winds up being a better life. Make some real changes. Be pure and be blessed. That's the deal. Our Lord Jesus Christ came down to tell us something. And one of the things he said is that the pure in heart will see God. We'll see him in our daily lives. And we will be among those who see him and are transformed by him on the day of his return. I can't really say it any better than Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Faith, grace, and purity in that order. For those of you who are already saved, that works for your walk. For those who are not, it works to change your eternal destiny from hell to heaven. Yes, really. Very few places you're ever going to hear that anymore doesn't make it any less true. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Receive His grace and offer it to others. With His help, walk in purity of heart. That is Christianity in a nutshell. That is the gospel according to Jesus. Who's ready? Let's pray. God, right now I pray for those in this room who maybe have never taken the first step of receiving your grace by faith in Christ. Who is it in our minds that wants us to believe it just kind of happens over time. What we see in Scripture is there's a point in time where a decision is made, where faith sparks to life. And someone says, I put my trust in Jesus to save me today, to make me righteous, to save me from sin. We're born again. It's new. There's something new. It's a, it's a big moment. Maybe someone today really has never had that moment. Why not right now? Just say yes to Christ in your heart. He sees your heart. He's there knocking on the door. Would you let him come in? Would you say, yes, I need Jesus. I come as a desperate beggar today, begging. 
Save me. Give me your righteousness. I can't do it on my own. That's what it means to be saved. To receive his righteousness. And Lord, for the rest of us, help us to to follow through with the rest of it. Lord, we need your help. Help us as those who have received grace to indeed uh, share grace in many ways, but ultimately and especially in sharing your gospel. The thing that can help someone move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. There's nothing else that we can do that's more gracious than that. And then, God, help us with this purity thing. The struggle, this lifelong struggle, Lord. Some of us need to hit the reset. We need to come back to the cross today, confess our sin, start over. We need help. We need to see you. I pray that someone today is making a decision that will result in being blessed and seeing God in the coming weeks in a way they haven't seen you in a long time. Thank you for what you've already been doing in my life as, we've been, as I've been preparing. I get to kind of go through these things in advance. So thank you for that, Lord, for decisions I've made to get some things straight. And I pray that there are others who make that kind of decision today because we can't do this if we can't see you. And we know you're there. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' awesome, holy name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.